Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series, and we have an excellent program about the brain, its function, the new science about the brain, which tells us many new things and why each brain is different for each of us in the Not Old Better Show audience. Thank you so much for listening today. As I say, we have got a great show and great guest today who, after reading his new book, Neuropedia, a brief compendium of brain phenomena, I've been looking forward to speaking with him for a while and whom I'll introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 689th episode when I spoke to first-time author Danny Olms about his new book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Guy, The Everyday Experiences That Changed My Life. Two weeks ago, I spoke with Smithsonian Associate Glory Liu about her new book, Adam Smith's America. Wonderful stuff for our Not Old Better Show audience. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. The brain has fascinated and puzzled scientists and philosophers, and all of us, for thousands of years. Although we know a great deal about the brain, there is still so much to learn. For example, we still do not have effective treatments and cures for many neurological and psychiatric disorders, and our understanding of how the brain generates consciousness is unclear. Join me in our guest, Smithsonian Associate Eric Chudler, a neuroscientist at the University of Washington, as he tells us about the fascinating, interactive journey into the brain. Dr. Eric Chudler will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check out our website for more details on Dr. Chudler's presentation titled Journey into the Brain. Today with Dr. Chudler, we'll chat about his presentation at Smithsonian Associates and how he'll use Zoom to engage our audience there. And we'll talk about the basic function and structure of the brain and several common brain myths. For example, do we only use 10% of our brain? What happens to the other 90%? And did dinosaurs have two brains? Dr. Chudler also reveals why he believes everyone, not just scientists, should learn about the brain. Dr. Chudler will give us a guided tour of our most important organ. He will offer insights into our current knowledge of the brain, and he'll suggest the directions that future brain research may take, including understanding Einstein's brain. Einstein's brain. Mathematician and physicist Albert Einstein suffered an abdominal aortic aneurysm and died at the age of 76 years on April 18, 1955. During Einstein's autopsy, Thomas S. Harvey, a pathologist at Princeton Hospital, removed Einstein's brain and kept it in the glass jar for many years. Harvey slowly released his hold on the famous brain and provided small samples to laboratories for analysis. In 1985, the journal Experimental Neurology published a paper by Marion C. Diamond and her colleagues. These researchers found that one area of Einstein's brain, cerebral cortex area 39, had more glial cells for every neuron compared to this number in brains from a control group. Other scientists have observed structural differences in glial cells, a thicker corpus callosum, a partial missing groove, a thinner cerebral cortex, and higher density of neurons in Einstein's brain. These observations were used to suggest possible neuroanatomical links 
to Einstein's cognitive prowess. The significance of the findings from these studies has been criticized because the brains used to compare to Einstein's brain may not have been adequate. For example, in one study, Einstein's brain was compared to the brains from people who are on average 12 years younger. Also, all of the studies had only one experimental subject, Einstein. Scientists do not know if other mathematical geniuses share the neurotomical features observed in Einstein's brain. Einstein's great intellect was not reflected in a great brain size. Einstein's brain weighed only 1,230 grams compared to the average adult human brain weight of 1,400 grams. That, of course, is our guest today, Smithsonian Associate Dr. Eric Chudler, reading from his new book, Neuropedia, a brief compendium of brain phenomena. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series, Dr. Eric Chudler. Dr. Eric Chudler, welcome to the program. Thank you, Paul. Good to talk with you, and uh, Happy New Year. Hope all's well for you there. I, it, we're catching up. Are you are you on the West Coast? Yes, in Seattle, Washington. Okay, good. Well, lots of rain, I know, out that way, and uh, hope all's well for, for you and yours. Um, and thank you very much again for your, your time today. I, I, I really appreciate that. We are speaking, of course, to Dr. Eric Chudler. Dr. Chudler will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates coming up uh, January 26th. We will have links so that our audience can find out more information about Dr. Chudler, about Dr. Chudler's upcoming Smithsonian Associate presentation. We hope to learn more from you today, Dr. Chudler, about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. And why don't we start there? Maybe tell us briefly about what you're going to talk about and... Uh, and in particular, how you'll use Zoom to engage our audience. We're all on Zoom these days, it seems. Yes, so we are. I've been on Zoom quite a bit as well. Uh, what I plan to do, yes. what I plan to do during my Smithsonian Associates presentation is focus on why I think it's important that everyone should know about how their brain works. I'm going to start with a little bit of uh, brain basics to get everybody up to speed about how the brain functions, about neurons, about glial cells or those support cells of the brain. I may even use some illusions to show how the brain can be tricked, which also helps scientists understand how the brain works. Um, Zoom certainly provides a way to reach out to large audiences. Uh, personally, uh, I, I prefer to do in-person talks where I can see an audience and see how they're responding and, and wake them up with different uh, tricks of the trade. But uh, Zoom does allow me to reach out to a large audience. And it does have some features to engage an audience. For example, I like to use polls to get a sense of how the audience is understanding particular concepts where people agree and disagree. I can also use chat so that I can get comments from people and uh, get uh, questions and perhaps some, some answers. And it also allows the audience to uh, express their own opinions and to share information with other people in the audience. So chat and polls and some visual illusions, I think I'll incorporate into my talk for the Smithsonian Associates. That's great. Thank you so much. And I note that your, uh, your title of the presentation is A Journey into the Brain. Of course, the brain is fascinated so so many uh, scientists and and all of us really for for thousands of years 
if we were take, to take a journey uh, to the brain, what what is going on up there? What would we notice and see uh, if we were able to go inside the brain? Yeah, that's a, a interesting question, Paul. And and I'll take your question literally, and I'll say <laughs> that it it depends on how we actually take our journey inside the brain. Uh-huh. So neurosurgeons, for example are going to journey inside the brain by removing part of the, the skull and peering inside. And when a neurosurgeon does this, the first thing that a neurosurgeon will see will be the, the coverings that are on top of the brain. Those are called the meninges. And this is a very thick layer that protects the brain. Uh, and to get to the brain, those coverings of the brain have to be removed. And if those coverings are then removed, then a neurosurgeon will be able to see the actual top surface of the brain called the cerebral cortex, which kind of has a pinkish white uh, hue to it. So that's one way that we can physically journey into the brain. Another way to journey into the brain would be by using different types of brain scans. So you may have heard of things like a magnetic resonance imager uh, or functional magnetic resonance imaging or a PET scan. These brain scans provide pictures of the brain without doing any surgery at all. And you can get views of what the brain looks like as well as what the brain is actually doing in an awake behaving person. So those are two ways you you can journey into the brain. And a third way that you can journey into the brain is to record the electrical activity that the brain is producing. So a technique called an EEG is is done by putting scalp electrodes and the electrical activity generated by nerve cells can be recorded. Or uh, a more invasive technique would be to drop electrodes into the brain and record individual neurons, individual nerve cells that are active. So you can journey into the brain by listening to the electrical activity that's generated in the brain. So those are three literal ways that we can journey inside and have a view of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, we we do know through all of these means an awful lot more about the brain uh, than than we have in in the past. But the brain absolutely holds plenty of mystery. One of the things that I found in my research in, in anticipation of our conversation is I, I, I found that the brain, it's been thought of that perhaps the brain is like a fingerprint. And I, I wonder if you'll tell us a little bit about that. Is that, is that fact or fiction? And are all brains alike? What's, what's different about the brain for each of us? Yeah, well, I think that all brains have the same major areas and they have the same structural makeup. You know, everyone has a cerebral cortex, a cerebellum, different parts of the brain. So the major areas are the same, but just like fingerprints are different for different people, every brain is unique in its own way. Uh, And what I mean by that is that Inside a human brain, we've got about 86 billion individual nerve cells and trillions of connections between nerve cells. Different experiences shape those connections between people. So no two brains are exactly alike, although they have the same general blueprint. But we all have unique memories, unique personalities, emotions, abilities, and those are all of a function about how our brains 
are wired up and connected. And these are the connections that are constantly changing as we experience new things. So the basic parts of the brain are there in all people, but the connections between each person are unique. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Eric Chudler. Dr. Eric Chudler is a neuroscientist at the University of Washington in Seattle. Dr. Chudler has written the new book, Neuropedia, a brief compendium of brain phenomenon. Dr. Chudler will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We will put links so that our audience can find out more about Dr. Chudler's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. So, I, Dr. Chudler, I, I reference this idea of you know, kind of fact or fiction. And I, I want to ask you a couple questions about myths that we we hear about the brain. The one that's so common is, perhaps even true of me, is, you know, I'm using only 10% of my brain. It, what's the truth about our brain use? And, and if it's true that I'm only using about 10%, um, do I even need the other 90% of the brain? What happens if that's not there? Yeah, I, I wouldn't suggest you getting rid of any part of the brain that you have. Uh, yeah, I've, I've heard that 10% of the brain usage uh, many times. I give uh, talks, and that's often a, a question that, that's asked. It is a myth. Uh, I think it's important that people first define about what they really mean by the statement that we only use 10% of the brain. Does that mean that perhaps 90% of the brain is used for unconscious functions versus conscious functions? Does it mean that the neurons are sending action potentials uh, constantly? Does it mean that there's some part of the brain that's used sometime and not other times? No matter how you define it, uh, it's a myth. There's no part of the brain that's just sitting there inactive. And I think when most people think about that statement, they think about the actual physical amount of the brain that's being used, not its potential. Uh, some people might change the question. Well, I, I really mean that the brain has the potential to learn new things. And that's true. We can always learn new things, but there's no part of the brain that's sitting there doing nothing. And we know that from a number of different lines of evidence. One is clinical evidence. When someone has an injury to the brain, for example, uh, a gunshot wound or traumatic brain injury from a motor vehicle accident, a small injury can cause devastating consequences. Uh, a stroke, which might affect just a small part of the brain, might prevent someone from being able to move an arm, maybe would prevent someone from speaking. And this damages a much, much smaller amount of brain tissue than, than 90%. Uh, another way to think about this is experimental evidence. So we can record from the brain, from some of those brain scanning techniques or recording techniques that I just mentioned, 
And you can see that the entire brain is, is active. There's no part of the brain that's sitting there doing nothing. So, you know, we know that even if a neuron is not actively sending a signal uh, or receiving information, it's still doing something. And neurons that are not used usually die or they often die if they're not receiving information from other nerve cells or they're taken over by other functions. So if, for example, a person loses an arm and so the part of the brain that is receiving signals related to the arm is no longer receiving signals, those nerve cells can then be, that function can be taken over by a neighboring area. So the brain doesn't like to do nothing. The brain likes to stay active. And if it doesn't, those cells die. So there's no truth to the, the, the statement that we only use 10% of the brain, no matter what Hollywood will tell us, like <laughs> movies Lucy or The <laughs> Limitless is another movie. That's right. There's, there's, there's no truth to that, no matter what Hollywood will tell us. <laughs> okay, well, so what about, what about animal brains versus human brains? I, I suppose another myth that I, I read about is that dinosaurs – had two brains. So what what can we learn about animal brains? I've heard this one about the two brains in, in dinosaurs. Uh, mm -hmm. But no, no, uh, dinosaurs did not have two brains, uh, one in their head and one in their spinal cords or near their tails. So that, that's what I've heard before. Uh, however, dinosaurs, they, they do have a, or they did have a large, uh, an enlargement in the lumbar region, that's sort of their lower region of their spinal cords. Uh, this is an area that receives input from the legs. And they had those large lumbering legs. And us humans, we also have an enlargement in our lumbar spinal cords as well as in our upper, uh, in our cervical spinal cords. That's the area of the spinal cord that has uh, signals to and from our arms. And it's because those, our arms and our legs, need more uh, neural information to control the muscles in our arms and receive signals from our, our skin from those areas. So we do have enlargements of our spinal cord, and dinosaurs also had an enlargement, but it's not a brain. It's just more motor neurons, basically, to control those large, large legs. Also, uh, it's possible that this myth about two brains in dinosaurs uh, happened because uh, in some dinosaurs, they found this a hollow area near the tail and the hips uh, region in, in dinosaurs. And it's not a brain, but what we think it is, is something called the glycogen body. And this is an area that stores glycogen for energy. We're not really sure what it does, but uh, that may have also caused this misconception about two brains because it kind of had this uh, enlargement. No, but no, dinosaurs did not have two brains. <laughs> Thank you for... And, and what we can learn from other animals, yeah, and, and what we can learn from, from animal brains is, is one, uh, it, we can provide, it, it provides an understanding of how different animals have evolved, uh, the common uh, pathways of, of evolution between animals, and perhaps uh, by studying animal brains too, we may be able to develop new treatments for neurological diseases as well. All fascinating stuff. I, I mentioned your new book, Neuropedia. It's getting excellent reviews. Um, again, the title is Neuropedia, A Brief Compendium of Brain Phenomenon. Uh, 
I want to talk about your book. I've got a copy of it here in my hands. Thank you so much for sending it. Thank you for generously reading uh, today to us from the, from the book. As I leaf through the book, I noticed just some amazing illustrations. They're they're beautiful. I'm looking at one on page 79. It's a a picture of the magnetic resonant imaging, the MRI. You referred to that earlier. But the rest of the illustrations are great. And I noticed, too, that they are by Kelly Chudler. So I wonder if you'll tell us about, well, what, what's your favorite illustration? <laughs> and maybe maybe introduce us to, to Kelly Chudler, too. <laughs> yeah, so Kelly is my daughter. She's a, a freelance illustrator and a musician. Uh, she has done some illustrations for some of my, my other books. I think perhaps one of my favorite illustrations is the uh, in the book is the one that she did of a Purkinje neuron. These are very highly branched neurons in the cerebellum. So this is an illustration that she did for my entry about the cerebellum. It shows someone dancing on top of a Purkinje cell. Uh, the cells in the cerebellum are very important for balance and posture. And I think, I think that's where she got her idea. Uh, but she's a freelance uh, illustrator and a musician, and she's always looking for work as well. <laughs> uh, so if anyone uh, needs an illustrator, b- please put them in touch with me. <laughs> I definitely will. We'll, we, um, we'll put links up to Kelly's website, too. I, I found that online, and uh, certainly there are some great links there. There's a, a store there where purchases actually go towards the treatment of chronic illnesses, all great stuff. Uh, I'm looking at the cerebellum illustration right now, Dr. Chudler, and it, it too is fantastic. I know that you can even buy some of Kelly's illustrations there at her website, which we'll link to. Well, Dr. Chudler, I, I just have one final question, and you, you you refer to this too, and that is, you know, kind of what Hollywood gets you know, wrong or right about the brain and, and brain science. And you, you mentioned Limitless. There's also the Matrix that talks about, you know, one of the themes of the movie is you can become a martial arts expert by uploading the ability to fight directly to your brain. Seems like that one is a pretty good stretch. <laughs> and so maybe maybe tell us a little bit about what Hollywood gets uh, wrong, in particular about the brain and brain science. Sure. Uh, well, let me first make it clear that I like science fiction movies. I, I watch them all. So I'm a big <laughs> yes. science fiction yep. fan, uh, but I watch them for entertainment. I don't <laughs> watch them to learn my science. And it's possible that some of these movies can inspire scientists to come up with new experiments and theories. Uh, they may even motivate young people who are interested in science to, to get into to science, you know, especially if the scientists who are depicted in the films you know, look like them. So perhaps it can motivate young people to pursue careers in science. But I think you have to be careful because it does have the potential Hollywood films for misinformation and to spread you know, falsehoods. Uh, for example, uh, Limitless, I think they, they upped the, the percentage of the brain to, I think they said that the humans used 20%. <laughs> so it went from 10% to 20%, but the movie Lucy, I believe, used the 10% myth. But anyways, just beyond misinformation, uh, movies have the potential to change perception and understanding of science. Uh, even though the audience might know what they're looking at is entertainment. And there's actually been some studies about this. There was one study that was published in, uh, I think it was 2006 in the journal Neurology that actually asked uh, adults about their perception of depictions of coma 
in film. And they, they've looked through 30 different Hollywood movies about how coma was depicted. And they found that of those 30 movies, I think only two of them depicted it having a coma realistically. There are a lot of uh, falsehoods like people waking up suddenly and then just walking around that that just doesn't happen or the absence of feeding tubes and and other uh you know intravenous lines and things like that or, or breathing tubes and feeding tubes it, they didn't show any of that and so uh not only did it was it depicted wrong but when they asked people would seeing this movie influence your decision if this happened to someone that you knew almost 40% of the people said that this movie would influence their decision-making process. So that's a problem because if it's depicted improperly, people will have uh, false hopes. They might even suggest uh, doing things that, that shouldn't be done to, you know, family and, and loved ones. So uh, it's not just a problem with, with neuroscience and neurology, but there's one other study that was done with earth science and they showed um, uh, uh, I think it was a movie called The Core uh, to middle school students. And the middle school students who watched the, that movie had more misconceptions than students who didn't watch the movie. So when you blend some truths with falsehoods, people become more susceptible to that misinformation. So I, I think it all comes down to you know, critical thinking ability. <laughs> Again, I like these movies just about uh, as anybody else, but I watch them <laughs> for entertainment, not to get my science. Well, Dr. Eric Schindler's been our guest. He is a scientist, a neuroscientist. He's also author of the new book, Neuropedia, A Brief Compendium of Brain Phenomena. Dr. Chudler will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check the website for more details on Dr. Chudler and his upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, as well as to the artist Kelly Chudler. We'll put links to where our audience can find out more information about uh, Kelly Chudler and her work. Um, Dr. Chudler, thank you so much for your time today, helping us. Many of us are definitely not scientists, but helping us understand that we all should learn about the brain. Um, again, Dr. Chadler, I hope you're well. Have a great rest of your day, and thank you so much for your generous time. Thank you, Paul. Goodbye. And my thanks to author and Smithsonian associate Dr. Eric Chudler in his new book, Neuropedia, A Brief Compendium of Brain Phenomena. Thanks, Dr. Chudler, for reading today. Dr. Chudler will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, so please check out our show notes today for more details about Dr. Chudler at Smithsonian Associates. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better Show audience here on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe, which I'm mentioning in every show because I want to bring attention to the issue of assault rifles, which aren't safe. They're not safe in anyone's hands but the military and law enforcement. Assault rifles are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, schools. Please, let's work together to eliminate assault rifles and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates Inside Science Interview Series. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time. <laughs>